Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman. As always, we are thrilled to have you. We're thrilled that you come to our channel, you, you download our shows, you listen to our shows, and you give us feedback. Uh, it's a big deal to us. We we appreciate that. And you know, speaking of your feedback, if you'd be willing to help us out, it does a lot for us when you can go to wherever you, you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Um, you know, like us on social media at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. That does a lot for us. And if nothing else, it just lets me know that you're listening and you enjoy the content. And by all means, you know, drop us a comment, send me a personal message. You know, if, if it's just as much as saying, hey, you enjoy this or you, you, you like this or you don't like it, we appreciate it because then I know. <clears throat> I'm catering to my audience, and uh, I, I, we really want to try to give you the best information out there possible for all things Pennsylvania and, and Northeastern Outdoors. And on this week's episode, it's going to be a little bit different than we've been for a while. We've had a lot of great guests here in the past few months. And this week, I'm going to scale back a little bit. Um, I'm going to ride solo, and I want to talk about a couple things. Um mainly with the idea of season preparation for this fall and uh, what that kind of looks like, not just from the standpoint of hunting strategy, but also from the angle of equipment setups and things like that. And I think that's probably going to lead me into a little bit of a a tangent on a couple things. So I'm going to give you the <clears throat> the, the the warning now at the beginning that might go into some stuff that you, you kind of just roll your eyes at but you know, I think it's going to get to a point where you're talking a little bit more about the philosophy and how my mindset goes over certain topics in hunting and you know maybe it'll be something that you agree with me and maybe it'll be something that you you would disagree with me and you would challenge me on and and that's fine we're it's okay if we're different it's okay if we have different opinions but one of the things i like to try to do in every way shape and form possible is give context to what we're talking about whether that is in the realm of food plots whether that's in the realm of hunting mature bucks um you know, whatever that might be, <clears throat> I think it's important to have context because there's so much information out there. And <clears throat> man, I can't speak this morning. There's so much information out there that if you take it out of context or you don't get the full picture, then you could be missing the mark. <clears throat> and that's in all things, and I want to go into that a little bit today. 
And speaking of season preparation, and before we get started, I just want to give a shout-out to Little Mountain Outfitters. Guys, if you are in the realm of getting a new bow, or you were just... You hear an episode like this, you talk about season preparation, you think, man, I need to start getting ready because it's here before you know it. We're at the end of June, and if you need to get your bow tuned up, you want to buy a new bow, you want to get arrows, accessories, uh, anything like that, you just need to get tuned up and ready for the season. Check Little Mountain Outfitters out in Richland, Pennsylvania. Guys, this is a great, great shop unparalleled customer service and not only are they awesome with their prime bows their matthews bows bear psc and a whole bunch more they also have kind of a one-stop shop for some other hunting accessories too and food plot seed included they're dealers for real world wildlife seed and if you are interested in saddle hunting but you never got your hands on one, you'd like to see one, feel one, talk about it with people who use them. They are saddle dealers. They are tethered dealers, um, among many other pieces of mobile hunting uh, gear. And I think it would be a great opportunity for you to talk about it with them and, and, and try something out. So again, at Little Mountain Outfitters on Facebook, you can check their website out as well. But Richland, Pennsylvania, be sure to get tuned up and ready to go all right so season preparation stuff <laughs> and uh, i'm going to give you a little disclaimer when i get started here i'm talking about season preparation but we are into the third week of june we're getting towards the end of june and i'm in a thank god moment for uh, for one specific reason and that's my job but i don't have near as much done or I haven't been able to help near as much for season preparation this fall as I want. I was able to come out and help with a couple of projects, one of them being food plots. Uh, we, we, most of the time it's been food plots in all reality. That's what I've tried to make the time for that I do have. But uh, this is a I try not to use the word busy, but it, it, it is a chaotic time for me this time of year with the line of work I do. And, you know, I get made fun of all the time because, you know, my friends and family, they see me with a, an SUV hooked up with an aluminum trailer and an ATV. And they, they hear that I drive all over and I use a four-wheeler and I drive around crop fields and it must be a luxurious time. And, hey, I'll be the first to admit it. I have a pretty cool job. I mean, how many jobs do you get to drive a four-wheeler around throughout the day? And uh, what I'm doing as an agronomist throughout the year, this time of year, from the time planting season goes until we get to the point where we've made our last decision of uh, going through the field and implementing a fertilizer, a pesticide, something like that, we're, we're assessing the crop to see problems. And, you know, most of the time, I added it up the other day, and I have a couple people that work with us and help me cover these acres so I'm not covering all of this in my two-week schedule but I kind of oversee all these acres and it's about it's like between 17 and 18,000 acres when I think about that number I just think about how staggering that is Um, I try to cover about a thousand acres in a day over a two-week period and then I have some people that help me cover some of the rest of the ground get their eyeballs on it and see what's going on in the field. And 
just to give you an example, you know, you might go for 900 acres of looking at corn, soybeans, sorghum, wheat, barley, any kind of row crop you can imagine. And you might not see anything wrong with those plants. And you're starting to think, okay, what what does Mitchell really do when he's doing his job? But believe it or not, there's plenty of times where I have to address problems and fix them. And I'll give you an example. I had the other day, I walked into a sorghum field, and the sorghum field was pretty young. The sorghum was about, uh, I'm going to say six inches tall. And the grower called me and said he was looking at the field the night before and something didn't look right. So we went out that morning and started digging around and we're finding all kinds of plants that are laying on the ground uh, cut off at the soil surface. And uh, I started digging around and figured out that for whatever reason, these sorghums had an insect infestation of uh, something called black cutworm. And it decimated sections of a sorghum field that needed to be replanted. And... You know, <clears throat> I think what what's the saying, the definition of insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. So I, I didn't want to just have them replant that field with the mindset that it could happen again if that pest has not gone away. So the way you combat something like that in most cases and point at a last minute situation, you know, we've got a very narrow window when we can replant and do something for that crop and help it to mature and, and ultimately be profitable for farmers. So the short-term solution was to uh, do a little bit of tillage to try to break up some of the compaction on the soil surface, break up some of those insect life cycles. <coughs> and then we also went in and we had some weeds that were starting to come through. And since we had to replant the field, we started over and I did have that grower add an insecticide. So, you know, you're hearing me talk about pesticides and farming, and there's a reason I'm talking about that. But I'm, I'm trying to go out and address fields and then come up with two different scenarios. A short-term solution for a grower to be successful and profitable. But then I'm, I'm also, in all reality, I'm looking at a lot of long-term solutions. And that's where it's going to connect to my season strategy uh, in the realm of food plots. What's pretty cool about the places I get to go, the very progressive agriculture, you know, agricultural farmers that I work with, they are doing some things that you're not seeing throughout the country. They're doing things to promote soil health, increase your water holding capacity, reduce the amount of overall chemicals that you use on a field, because we believe and we see it time and time again when you continue to push that envelope you have healthier soil and you have better crops i'm not saying that there's not things to manage in either situation like there's differences in management and making that a success it's not like it's just you snap your fingers and it becomes that easy but when you start to gravitate down that road of making sure you put a cover crop and when i say that you're taking corn and soybeans out of the field and immediately going back in with something that overwinters like a cereal grain or a brassica or a an annual clover or you know the list goes on and on and what that's doing is that's keeping soil covered 
with something on top to prevent erosion, but it's keeping the soil alive. You're keeping living roots there to keep your microbial activity high and doing things that ultimately just transfer nutrients and water way better to the crop the next year. And the longer you do things like that, the better off you're going to be. So I go into that little bit of a farming tangent to go into the segue of season preparation this year. Because a lot of food plots on private land, you start out a lot of the way like I did and a lot of other people did. You till the soil, you broadcast seed on top of it, and you hope it grows well. And I've seen plenty of tilled food plots come up well. I'm not telling you you can't grow a good food plot using tillage. But what what I will say is I have seen... just as many if not more problems with tillage in your food plots as I have no-till. And case in point, the places that I'm fortunate enough to to grow food plots on, we have very light topsoil. There's not a lot of topsoil. There's a ton of rocks. It's hard on equipment to till. And you, uh, you find you dry the soil out very, very quickly. And one of the issues I have with tilling is you got to wait until it's fit to plant, fit to be in the field, or else if it's too wet, you're going to compact the field when you till it. Believe it or not, if you go into a wet field with the mindset of you're going to till it up and dry it out, you make way bigger problems, and that problem is compaction. But anyway, when you start to uh, till the soil, it, it, you got to have it dry as possibly can be so you don't compact it, and you put seed on, then you do the opposite. You pray for rain, and you pray that it gets rain, and those young seedlings in that dry dirt <coughs> don't die out. And ultimately, you're speeding up the microbial activity. There's no cover on the soil, and if you're like me, a lot of your food plots probably aren't in the best soil. They're probably on steeper hills, which makes them more vulnerable to eroding when they're tilled and they're they're vulnerable like that. So I have kind of made a transition to the food plots the past few years, and, you know, with the help of the guys that I, I get to work with on a regular basis and you know, us brainstorming and finding some equipment and stuff like that, we we started to incorporate no till food plots a few years ago. And we started off with no equipment. And I'll just go real quick. The way that we did that, we would plant a summer crop of buckwheat. And, you know, you can add some other things like that. But, the, the you know, we stole this from another habitat manager who uses this system. And we tried it. And it, it does work. But we would go through with a, a buckwheat crop sometime planted in June. Again, I'm in southeast Pennsylvania. So... We would go through and plant buckwheat sometime in mid-June, allow that buckwheat crop to grow somewhere between six and seven weeks long. We would go through and broadcast our seed blends right into that standing buckwheat. Then we have a a cul-de-packer that we can hook up to uh, a tractor and cul-de-pack the buckwheat right over top of the seed. And then we would spray it dead with Roundup glyphosate. And, you know, that would cover the seeds that would hold moisture, but the seeds would come right up through that uh, very, very pliable stalks of the buckwheat. And you could have a nice food plot by no-tilling. 
And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I find when you start to increase your acres that it's just easier when you can upgrade and use some bigger equipment. The other thing too, and when I was talking about the soil health thing earlier in my farming tangent, when you grow good high biomass crops in in the summertime, you, you got to think about that, you know, corn, sorghum, soybeans, cowpeas, sun hemp, blah, 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 all those plants in the summertime. Think about how tall they can get. Some of them can get six, seven, eight feet tall. And when you've got that much above ground biomass, you have that much below ground root system. And that's, that's tapping into places in your soil that small plants just can't get to because they are not as mature. But you're allowing nutrients from well below the soil surface to be pulled up into that vegetation. And then when you kill it, all those nutrients that are locked up in those plants, they dry up and they they deposit right on top of the soil surface. So you actually can build your fertility when you can grow big biomass plants. So that leads into what we're doing. And this year, uh, we just got done about two and a half weeks ago planting with a a no-till drill and a tractor, we planted a mixture that has grain sorghum, cowpeas, sunflowers, sun hemp, and, oh my goodness, I'm going to forget the last one, buckwheat, buckwheat, has those five species. Those are all species that are very good soil health proponents. They've got some of them legumes, uh, sorghums of grass, but they all have a different purpose in the soil and kind of how they have their root systems and distribute nutrients and stuff like that that you know, I don't need to get in to be too boring. But my goal with that is to hopefully allow that to get tall enough. I'm, I'm hoping to see some good growth. And then this fall, we'll go through and take our fall blends and plant right through them. If you've followed, you know, things like uh, growing deer with Dr. Grant Woods, or if you're familiar in the farming aspect and you've seen progressive farmers do this, it's just a recycling of nutrients process. And I'm doing that because I'd like to see a transition made in our soils where we can hold better moisture when we have extreme events of rain, extreme events of heat, things like that, our soil has a better buffer because it's covered and it has more nutrients that I can ultimately hopefully start to reduce our uh, commercial fertilizer inputs. You know, I take soil tests on a regular basis. Our fertility is on the lower end of the thing because, you know, you think about it, you put fertilizer in a field, it goes into a plant. And what is a plant? It's a nutrient transfer agent to an animal. So deer goes in, eats the food plots in your plants, walks out of the field and defecates. You just lost all the nutrients that that plant took up. So, you know, how can you do that in a more cost-effective way? My goal is to try to do it with, you know, organic green manure fertilizer in the summertime. You can't get that if you are allowing deer to eat your food plots lip high all the time. And that was one of the issues that we've experienced. We have a decent deer density. And if we plant stuff and we we set things up that deer can eat constantly, I just don't see enough acres on this property yet that they won't eat it to lip high. And 
I tried to choose the species and the timing and do things that would delay the amount of browse pressure we get. You know, all the species I just told you about, um, they'll all get browsed to some degree. There's a reason I added grain sorghum to that mix, and there's a reason there's buckwheat in there, is from my perspective, those are species up there that won't get browsed quite as hard. So even if the deer come in and they annihilate the cow peas, even if they start to learn what sun hemp is, it's the first time that it's ever been on that property. If they learn what sun hemp is and they start to eat sun hemp, and they maybe they eat all the sunflowers too, <clears throat> I still have something that is actively growing and hopefully going to put some biomass on and accomplish my goal. It might not be to our desired planting depth or yeah, depth, our desired planting rate and thickness. It, it might not reach that ultimate goal, but it's better than nothing. It's better than planting a monoculture of a legume like soybeans or peas, allowing them to eat it to the dirt, and then going in and replanting in the fall and really not accomplishing much of anything. If you've listened to me before, I've I've stress that I'm not a huge proponent on growing deer or providing year-round nutrition, so to speak. And not that that's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. I just feel with with what my goals are, I want to try to harvest the best deer in the area, have the, have a chance to hold and hunt the best buck in the area on that property that I hunt. And I just don't feel comfortable spending a, a ton of time and money with you know having all the other priorities in my life with you know family and and everything else to 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 just ex- explode on my resources on year-round nutrition and stuff like that yes it's a great thing and i'm anybody who does that hats off to you because it is a, it's not bad at all <laughs> okay i just wanted to make that disclaimer but for me if we have a deer that has the potential to get to 150 inches and he might not have the year-round nutrition on our property that gets him to that and he only makes it to 140, but he's still a five-and-a-half-year-old, mature, hard-to-hunt whitetail, that is still a trophy in my mind. And I want to do everything I possibly can. So I cheat a little bit to, or I want to cheat a little bit to, emphasizing attraction on that property in the fall. One of the ways we do that is fall food plots, trying to have the most amount of fall food from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. So our fall food plot is going to have a a mix of stuff. It's going to have some probably peas and beans mixed into it and that'll be something that's really good early in the season from the time it gets planted up to archery opener and hopefully into the beginning of archery season we'll have some brassicas in there you know your radishes your turnips your kale stuff like that which i usually see a little bit more attraction into october and november then we'll have some cereal grains We've been using rye. If I can find rye this year, if, if not, I'll, I'll switch to wheat. But a cereal grain is something that it's growing actively when we have cold soil temperatures and everything else is dead. So from November, December, even into January, a cereal grain is attractive. So we've got species in all the same locations that maintain deer utilizing that on a regular basis. It makes a predictable movement during hunting season, and you can formulate a hunting 
uh, strategy around that, whether that's sitting on food plots or whether that's <coughs> sitting to and from food locations and ambush points. But it keeps a regular movement on your property. And, you know, that is just one piece. It's it's fall food and it's, it's as much biomass as possible. But there's a lot of other stuff that goes on to try to hold deer on. And a lot of it involves chainsaw work and creating pockets of browse and cover to ultimately have deer feel secure then it, it takes a a very high hunting strategy a high quality hunting strategy of trying to allow deer to not see you hear you or smell you and have have as full proof of access as possible to to try to give the illusion that you're not hunting them so you know those later parts i think are you know that, that's a podcast in and of itself and we've had some some hunters that are just way more knowledge and knowledgeable and, and better than me at, at explaining some of those things and sharing their experiences but uh, you know that, that's ultimately the goal so uh, we set up a uh, a food plot program as such and another thing that's happening right now is <clears throat> we're in the process of trying to make another food plot try to expand our acres and you know it's going to do a couple things with this it's of course going to create a giant opening that's going to have more food that's going to attract more deer likely but what's great about it is that the block of timber that we hunt <clears throat> it is a monotonous oak hickory forest of the same age on the entire property and aside from some topography some hollows and stuff like that you really don't have bottlenecks pinch points and features that just make it uh just easy as can be to choose stand locations you really have to create that and when you make a big food plot you're creating a very large open edge and when you do that in conjunction with some of the bedding areas that have been cut in some of the corridors that are cut in a water hole here um, a small micro food plot here that leads to the larger food plot you're starting to create um, a line of movement that is easier to hunt and I think what's cool about the food plot that's going in it's going to give some other stand options between known bedding areas and created bedding areas in between food sources it's going to give um, opportunities to hunt those it's definitely going to increase our chances during the rut I feel where you've got um, these these bottlenecks between these bedding areas and creating rut rut funnels in the morning so you know uh, i'm even thinking about morning hunts with this set set up even though it's it's a, a new food plot so that's kind of what's happening in that realm and the next thing i wanted to talk a little bit about which is going to lead me down a road into a little bit of a tangent but i wanted to talk a little bit about just preparing yourself physically and mentally with uh, with your equipment so I try to set my bow up that I am shooting on a regular basis and I still haven't got there but my goal is that by the beginning of July when my work slows down I want to get back into a routine of shooting my bow on a regular basis my goal is to shoot every day it might turn into every other day depending on how things go but I want to come up with a practice routine that gets my muscles back into shooting form gets my mind ready and I, I, that I'm completely prepared with my hunting setup this fall. 
and how I go about doing that. You know, if you listen to last week's episode when we talked with John Henney and Justin DeLong, we, we talked a little bit about shot execution and beating target panic and things like that. And I try to, when, when I've been cold, I haven't shot for a, a while, I haven't had any kind of practice routine, the first maybe week or so, when I'm trying to build my muscles back up, I don't want to develop bad habits because my muscles are fatigued and stuff like that, and I start trying to make shots go off at different times or or force shots, so to speak, punching the trigger or just advancing the timing of my release and stuff like that. I will go up and I'll blind bail. And for those of you who don't know what blind bail is, you're, you're literally walking up to the target and you're allowing the target to be about three feet away from you, you're drawing your bow back, you're focusing on your process of your draw cycle, you're anchoring, settling in, and then executing a good, smooth release. And that is easily overlooked in the hunting world. It's it's becoming more popular as it becomes more well-known. I think that is probably one of the best exercises you can do because if you start going out and you get excited, and you start going out to your range, and you're shooting, and you start getting tired, but you're just having fun, and you want to keep flinging arrows, it is really, really easy to develop bad habits on target on those spots that you're aiming at, and that can lead to problems. So I will try to clear my mind and just worry about nothing other than a shot series. My draw, anchor, settle, Uh, I think about the way I breathe. I try to inhale and exhale slowly and, you know, keep my my heart rate and breathing pattern uh, relatively calm. And then I'm leaning with my back muscles and I'm executing a shot. I use a back tension release, which is a hinge style release. It falls off. And when when I do all those things properly, I can come up with a shot process and it's usually within a certain amount of time. I like my shot timing to stay relatively consistent. I don't like to be um, executing a quick shot one time and then the next shot I'm on target and I'm holding, I'm holding, I'm holding, I'm pulling and I just can't get the shot to go off. And the way you, the way that I prevent that from happening is I try to be repetitive in a blind bail. I try to take my mind of aiming out of the realm and I just focus on my body and my muscles and executing that shot. Now from there, once I start to get into that routine, I built a range at my house. Uh, I'm fortunate enough, I can shoot out to 100 yards. And I'm I'm not saying that because I want to be a big he-man, macho man that I can shoot 100 yards. I just believe the longer you extend your practice range, the better of an archer you become in the woods at your short game. So one, one of the things I've really tried to do is if I can shoot um, respectable groups double the distance of what I'm planning to in the fall, then I'll be, it's going to make that shot half the distance that much easier. So if I'm sh- basically what that means is if I shoot 100 yards and I shoot consistent groups at what I'm aiming at, you know, if it's maybe it's a, a 10 inch group at 100 yards, I'd like it to be a lot smaller and I, I usually can get it. But let's just say I'm shooting a 10 inch group at uh, at 100 yards or, or less, you know, that 
that usually means that my groups of 50 yards are usually less than five inches. And a lot of the time I can have a group when I'm on a good practice scheme that I can fit into, you know, a large coffee cup. And I feel pretty confident that when I'm sitting on a food plot, when I'm sitting in a situation where I have the time to go through that shot process and a deer is relaxed, that I can make a 50-yard shot. And some people like to really bash that you shouldn't shoot long distance. And that's a context thing. That's an experience thing. And everybody has those different experiences when it comes to shot execution and deer reacting to it. And I'm, I'm going to touch base about that a little bit. But, you know, I, I'll go through my shot processes in the summertime and I'll, I'll start shooting from 20 yards and extend to 30, 40, 50. And I'll get to a point in the summertime where I won't shoot anything less than 80 to 100 yards, and I'll try to shoot a lot of arrows repetitively at that distance. It really magnifies your your uh, your problems you have. It magnifies your mistakes, and then you can work through those mistakes after you've built your muscles up and you've started to build build your mental game up from a short distance, moving out to longer distances. And then the last thing that I do, and I I learned this from my uncle, and I think this is this is a, a trick that I never heard anybody else do except him. And I, I started to incorporate it into my shot process and I really like it. So I switched to broadheads, shooting broadheads pretty much exclusively about one to two months prior to the season. A lot of the t- I say one to two months. I want it to be about two months before the season. I'm shooting broadheads consistently because I want to have the confidence in those heads and my setup and my, my bows tuned and shooting them appropriately. A lot of the time it ends up being a month because I know how my life goes and stuff gets pushed back and pushed back. But if I can be in that realm and I'm shooting my broadheads and practicing them with them and uh, I, I know I'm building that confidence. But when I finalize that tuning process, have my broadheads flying accurately. And again, I, I shoot a, uh, a, a relatively uh, average arrow, maybe a little bit above average. It's a 460 grain carbon arrow. I have a, a steel out, you know, half in, half out outsert for my, uh, my insert that my broadhead screws into just for kind of structural integrity. It adds a little bit of weight. I fletch my own arrows. I put a four fletch on with a slight helical. I find that really stabilizes well because I shoot fixed blade broadheads. And I shoot fixed blades because they're foolproof. I don't have to worry about any mechanical issues that could potentially arise. And it's a a good, sharp, quality head. And when I've got that all tuned, locked, and loaded, the last part of my process that I will do leading up to the season this might be the last you know 20 to 30 days i'll start to shoot one arrow at a time you know i'll put a target at a distance maybe i'll even have my bow at my back porch and the the target at a location that all i got to do is step off my back porch and shoot from there one arrow at a time and what i'm doing let's say that target's out there at 45 yards when you're in a hunting situation the first shot is the one that counts that's the one that matters and if you shoot a bunch of groups and you're shooting constantly and constantly and maybe you have a shot here or there that you know oh that one was off that one was me and uh you 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 go back into groups i'm i'm fine i've noticed when you shoot one shot at a time 
for a while and then you formulate a group then you start to see a trend in your group that you make say maybe I need to adjust my pin just a little bit you know maybe your first shot you were shooting just a hair to the right off of where you were shooting when you have you know 50 to 100 arrows going down range and I think that slight first shot tweaking is just another step to getting closer and being well prepared you know if your first shot is you know an inch different for whatever reason and you can make that minor adjustment I just feel that's a small percentage thing a lot of people think that that's dumb I shouldn't say a lot of people I've heard I've I've shared that with other people and they don't understand that I, I challenge you to try it because when when my uncle shared that with me and I started to do that I really feel that it just was a, it was as much of a mental boost and a mental confidence thing in my shooting setup for that first shot as anything and I, I think it's something that you ought to consider doing <clears throat> now brought up arrow setups and this is going to kind of segue into my next little part here so you know, we, we've done the Pennsylvania Woodsman now for a little over a year. It's been a wonderful ride. It's been a great thing that uh, I plan to continue to do as long as possible, Lord willing. Now, the one thing that we have, you know, I have to do, <clears throat> it's kind of a necessity, is do social media. And if you follow us, you see that I post stuff about food plots in our episodes and hunting and stuff like that on Facebook and Instagram. Prior to this podcast, I wasn't doing any social media. About the most social media thing that I would do is YouTube. You know, I'd watch some YouTube videos, maybe read some comments, make some comments, and that was the extent of my social media, <clears throat> so to speak. And now that I have a Facebook and Instagram page that we manage, um, I decided, you know, I want to utilize social media as a great resource and network with people and, and learn some stuff from people. And one of the things that I did, I, I'm kind of on a kick right now. I want to get back and I'd like to shoot a bear in Pennsylvania again, and I'd like to do it with my bow. I've been successful. I've harvested two bears in Pennsylvania, but I'd like to take it to the next step and, and harvest one with the bow. And so I, I joined a couple of bear hunting groups on Facebook and I started, you know, listening and following along or, or reading stuff that people have to say. I'd, I'd ask questions, just getting people's perspective because, you know, these groups are, <clears throat> you know, across, the, it's people across the country and, you know, even into Canada and stuff like that. And there's a lot of different styles of bear hunting from baiting and hounds and stuff like that. And you know, as you all know here as listeners for the state of Pennsylvania, the only hounds we can use are are people. Um, you know, making drives and chasing them that way is the only way you can do it. Otherwise, you're on your merits, uh, man against beast, and you're not <clears throat> you're not really utilizing any other you know advantages, so to speak. It's just you against against the bear. And so, I, I like to hear people that have different experiences and have had success and. Across my travels through all these pages, I'm amazed that like there's like this bear hunting cult and talking about <clears throat> shot placement. And I'd never even heard of some of this terminology and things that these that people talk about. And it actually drives me a little bit nuts just knowing what I know about 
<clears throat> the uh, the vital organs of mammals. And the thing I wanted to talk about was th- there's this concept in bear hunting where the people talk about aiming for the middle of the middle. Now, let that soak in for a little bit. What the heck is the middle of the middle? I've never even heard of that until I started reading along with these bear hunting groups. So if you've hunted for a long time, or if you've, you're, you're a new hunter, when you hear term aim for the middle of the middle of the bear, well, <clears throat> from my mind, I picture a bear standing broadside. You know, I see his front shoulder up to his brisket, and I see his rump, his hind end there, and I go, okay, the middle, well, I'm going to gravitate halfway between those two points, and that's the middle of the bear. And <clears throat> middle of the middle, well, then I take the top of his back and the bottom of his belly, and I go halfway in between that, and that's middle of the middle. That's how I interpret that. Maybe that's not what that terminology means, but that's how I interpret that. And from my perspective, I don't care if you're shooting with a gun or with a bow, I think that's terrible advice if that's what that means. Because when you start to go that far back, you are getting pretty darn close to a liver and a, a intestinal or a paunch shot. You, you don't have a lot of room for error in that sense because you're so far back. And I've heard a lot of people say that, well, the lungs of a bear go farther back than a whitetail. And, okay, when you look at the diaphragm of a bear, if you've ever gutted a bear and you kind of see where their lungs go back, it does sit back that the top of their lungs do come back a little bit further in their rib cage than a whitetail. However, I think a lot of people don't realize how far back the lungs go on a whitetail deer. Uh, they go pretty far back and high just the same. <clears throat> the, the, the thing I want to stress is while there are some minor differences among a lot of mammals, you know, from your cervids, the deer, the elk, and the moose and stuff, to you know, black bear and, and bear and stuff like that. And then like you get into uh, hunting pigs, you know, their heart placement is, I think it's actually a little bit lower than a deer and it's actually a little bit further back than a deer. But <clears throat> having said all that, where you've got the most amount of arteries and just pure carnage to put your arrow or your bullet through is in what they call the vital V. And every single land mammal has a vital V. And what that is, it's where the the shoulder bone, the scapula, meets the, I'm going to get the right bone here, the humerus, or basically your arm joint. I mean, think about it when you're sitting here listening to this. You've got your shoulder and your scapula covers the back half of that. Think about where that bone meets your uh, your next part of your arm down to your elbow. That, that's the, the area that I'm talking about. On a, on a mammal, there is a V because the, the scapula, if you're looking at a broadside animal, let's say its head is facing to the left, It's you're picturing that animal broadside, that scapula is angled at, a, just for all intents and purposes, let's say it's angled at a 45 degree 
uh, downward to the left, it meets that um, bulge of just of bone, that knuckle there, and then the the leg bone comes down to what I'm going to call the elbow, and it angles down back to the to the right. I mean, you can sort of picture that, I would think. There's a that that creates a V, and within that V is the most arteries. There's you know your lungs, your heart, you got everything in there, and that is going to sustain the absolute quickest death possible. Think about where that is in relation to the middle of the middle. From my perspective, that's very two very different aiming points. So when it comes to aiming, I, I always would say go somewhere in between those two points of impact because that is going to give you the, the point of heart, lungs, and if I miss by two inches in any direction, I'm still in the boiler room, and that is going to be a dead animal. Um, you, I, I am a big proponent of shooting broadside and quartering away shots only when I'm hunting with my bow and arrow. And that's another thing that people can take out of context. And I'm still learning about it, and I'll, I'll be open and vulnerable about that. Arrow setups and the different arrow setups that uh, you see on social media and people are pushing uh, with the emphasis of heavier arrow setups and different broadheads and things like that for maximum penetration. But from my perspective, your average arrow, uh, and I say an average arrow that's within that realm of your of your uh, flex, I'm forgetting my, my words that you use, but the, the spine of the arrow, you need the spine of the arrow for your bow weight. If you are shooting that a lot of the time, that's somewhere between 400 and 450 grains. A lot of the time, if you shoot a hundred point head and you have a balanced arrow, even if you shoot a fixed blade broad end, even my setup that I'm talking about, uh, I shoot a 60 pound bow. I don't have the momentum and kinetic energy that if I hit a heavy bone that I'm going to break through that my arrow is probably going to fail not get enough uh, not get enough penetration I'm probably going to wound that animal and not get it if I shoot a quartering towards shot and I hit that heavy bone that's not to say that a quartering two shot isn't a lethal shot with the right placement you just have a very small window of success in that situation than you do if you have a broadside or quartering away shot. So I choose to take broadside and quartering away shots as much as I possibly can because of my arrow setup. What I haven't learned yet is can you truly shoot and if you take that shot, if you would happen to make that mistake, a plan B mistake, if you have that heavy arrow and that good quality setup, um, quality broadhead, I mean, do you have the ability to break that heavy bone? And I'm saying the heavy bone. I'm talking about the the ball joint where the scapula meets. And I'm not talking about a broadside deer where you go through that thin scapula. My setup, I've done that on deer, and I've seen it break scapulas. That's not that impressive to me. Besides that, if you're shooting a broadside deer and hitting it in the scapula, you're really not hitting the lungs. You're missing where you should be aiming anyway. But anyway, if you take a quartering towards shot and you hit that knuckle joint, which is probably the third hardest bone in the entire body of that mammal you're hunting, 
can you actually break that and get enough penetration to go through? I've seen some videos of guys that make it really questionable and make it interesting. You know, if if I have the knowledge and the and ability to increase my shot opportunities and know I can be successful in harvesting and not wounding that animal, why wouldn't I do that? I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough confidence that changing that setup is going to improve my uh, my shot percentages by that much. Now, somebody else could correct me wrong if they have different experiences, but I just feel at this moment in time with what I know and what I'm doing, it's unethical for me to take anything beyond a shot that I can get both lungs of the animal. You know, aiming, I always try to aim low. You know, deer react to that sound of the bow and the sound of the arrow. I said it before, I'll say it again, I think 30 yards is one of the worst distances for reacting to the arrow. Um, you know, there's something about that barrier where they, they, they have reaction time to that arrow and like they get the most reaction. I've, I've watched film of deer that I've shot and deer, you know, film of deer that other people shot and just that reaction timing and how far that they're able to move till the arrow gets there. It's astounding. So to combat that, I usually aim for the heart. The heart is, you know, obviously right behind that pocket, you know, Good old Uncle Ted Nugent, I like to follow him. He always calls it a pocket rocket. But that pocket right behind the elbow, very low in the deer, that's where the heart is. And if the deer does not react or reacts very little and I hit the heart, that's a dead deer. And if it does react and it ducks 10 inches, I'm still within the realm of lungs and should have a double lung hit and have no problem. I think a lot of people ought to think about that too with your uh, shot location, shot execution. You know, you want to be as ethical as possible. You know, know the limits of your equipment. Test the limits of your equipment. And that was kind of the tangent I went into. I share all that because there's a lot of keyboard warriors out there for stuff. And, you know, I say that there's probably, they probably don't mean anything bad Why why, what they're saying. Um, You know, let's just give it the example of shot execution. Is somebody posts a video on YouTube, hey, somebody might even respond to this episode that we're doing here on Pennsylvania Woodsman with a comment and uh, might come across in a text message or a personal message that says, you know, that's basically stupid, you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's hard to, hard to grasp the context and the experience they have in those personal messages. And uh, I, I try not to take stuff like that to heart, and I hope that nobody does, but what I'll say is I, I try to, every time I watch a video, if there's something I disagree on, I, I absolutely will not write a comment that is negative towards anybody. I mean, guys, we gain nothing as hunters working together here. Like, we gain nothing by fighting with each other is what I'm getting at. I, I don't want, I hate when I see people talking about, you know, the the private land versus public land you know, clash of, and, and people complaining about, well, you shot that deer on private land, who cares? Or, you know, you know, public land, why would you shoot that young deer on public land? That doesn't make any sense. Same thing with your arrow setups. You stand to benefit nothing by just bashing everybody through a keyboard or in person. But a lot of the time it happens through keyboards because I think people are weak and that's their easy out to make fun of somebody and make themselves feel better. But say positive things. If you've got an experience and it's different from what somebody has, share it in a positive light because 
ultimately you might help that person. You might help me. Maybe you listen to this episode and you're like, I don't know what Mitch is talking about. I have been shooting a 600 grain arrow with a cut on cut contact broadhead with a 25% FOC and I've had such great success that I can take, I feel like I can take any shot when I release the arrow, I've got a dead deer. Well, that's kind of something I want to know about. And I'd like to know, how did you learn that? What have been your experiences? Did you have any bad experiences with that? And what would you do to recommend? Because at the end of the day, what I really don't want to see, and the reason I brought this up in your season preparation is if you're newer or if you're shadowing somebody, um, maybe you're mentoring somebody who and they're shadowing you, I, I really don't want to see new hunters have bad experiences. I don't want to see somebody that watches somebody say, okay, I can shoot a deer at 20 yards and it's quartering towards me very hard and I can blow through that shoulder. And they hear that and go, oh, that must be a normal thing. I can do that. And they go and they they screw a 100 grain expandable broadhead on to a 400 grain arrow out of a, you know, 60 pound bow, very common setup. And they go out into the woods and shoot a deer and they can't find it because they ultimately wounded it. You know, that's a terrible experience. I don't want anybody to have to ever experience that. And I, I want newer people to be able to take the context. So moral of my uh, tangent that I'm going on here is <clears throat> with your season preparation, know your limits of your equipment. Practice in a way that prepares you mentally to kill an animal. I've been guilty that over the years when I'm younger that like I, I get into this, this mindset, I just want to shoot a deer. I just want to kill a deer so bad. And I have taken some shots that if I could take the arrow back or the bullet back, I would. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, past admitting my weaknesses. I've taken some shots that I would love to take back because they ended up in long track jobs and sometimes they ended up in not recovering the deer. Now, I learned a lot of good experiences from those things and I think they molded me to try to be a better hunter and hopefully give advice to those who haven't had those experiences yet in their hunting career and hopefully that they, they never do or at least at a very uh, very small percentage uh, of those experiences that happened to them. But I, I really just wanted to share. So know the limits of your equipment. Practice in realistic situations. You know, I, I talked about my practice scheme of shooting longer distances and trying to you know, figure out if I'm going to shoot out to, let's say I'm going to shoot to 70 yards, you know, then I feel comfortable to 35 yards. You know, I want to cut that distance in half. I think that's a great thing to do. And, you know, the one hour thing, practicing with your broadheads, there's so many people that just overlook that. And I, I personally don't just trust the practice heads that come with your pack of broadheads. I actually try to shoot I shoot a replacement blade, fixed blade broadhead. So I'll shoot all my broadheads and make sure that they all fly and shoot the same way. And if something's off, I switch it out. But once I get those all locked and ready to go, that I'm ready to put them in a quiver, I change the blades and have razor-sharp blades to go into the field. And I I personally think that's important. It's, it's at least important for my mental health and knowing. And the last thing that I'm working on, and I'm, I'm going to make this quick and brief, and the last thing I'm trying to figure out is the time management aspect of it. 
you know, I, I shared with you in the beginning that it's it kind of bugs me a little bit that, you know, with work and family and just the the day-to-day life schedule that I have, I haven't been able to do as much in the woods for season preparation as I would like to. And I think in the months of July, August, I'm going to be able to do more. And I'm trying to plan ahead that I can do more. And, you know, that's going to involve a lot of different things. But, you know, I think about the way life goes on and it gets into the fall hunting season. I've talked about this on other episodes. I like to try to hunt when I think the timing is right. And what I mean by that is following trail camera information to make a decision, whether that's current trail camera information or history of trail camera information like following a deer for two or three years and seeing that he has a trend that a certain week in October he likes to go past this location sometime in daylight hours and using that you know I try to use that information I have some some things I like to watch in the weather uh, wind direction is is still one of the most important things for me because that's going to determine if I can get to some of the best spots that we that are set up on the properties that I hunt or not you know, I try to take those pieces of information and then formulate a, uh, a high efficiency hunt to the point where I feel when I'm going into that location, I, I'm either going to, you know, I, I'm probably going to see the deer I'm after or I'm going to kill him. And that's, that's the level of, of efficiency that I'd like to have. And I'm learning, I learned it last year and it's not going to be any different this year that, you know, my time is definitely not my own the way it once was. So one of my goals this year is to try to manage my time that, first of all, if I have the time to go hunting this fall, meaning the, my, my kids are taken care of, uh, my wife gives me the, the check of approval, I, I, I need to be out in the woods and I need to be hunting because I love to do it. I, I, I want to be out in creation with my bow in my hand. But I think in order for me to do that and be successful and not cause issues for me the rest of the season, I need to expand some of my stand locations. I think I need to explore a little bit more in locations that if I go into it and I hunt it and I screw something up, it's not on one of the the best locations I have planned months in advance and I have to wait two, three weeks for that excuse me, for that stand to get fresh again or that property to get fresh again. You know, you go in just because you can, because you want to hunt that spot and it's not, the timing isn't right, you're going to burn yourself in the long run. And I try to treat the season, you know, from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, I've got basically three months, a little over three months, to harvest the target animal that I'm after. And if I force it, I'm probably going to have some bad experiences and it's probably going to shoot myself in the foot down the road if I'm not successful on that first sit. So how am I going to combat that this year? I'm going to go back out in some of the areas that I've scouted on public land or just surrounding properties that I just haven't taken the time to knock on doors and and put that effort into. I'm going to try to have some some ideas of north, south, east, and west winds and uh, stand locations that I might be in, you know, in the game at least, even if the weather or something is just off that I can't get there. You know, let's just say, uh, you know, some of my best locations in evening I think are a northwest wind. And uh, if I have a southwest wind or a south wind, uh, I don't have a lot of great evening locations. So what should be my goal then? If I have time to hunt and I have a south wind, I need to go find a place that I think I can try it. 
and it's not going to be in the core of the main hunting properties that I have because I can't change anything to make that wind direction work for me. But if I have some public land locations, which I have some in my mind as we speak, that I want to fine-tune with camera locations and then determine the best access to hunt those, because I believe that there's some deer that I would put my tag on this year in those locations. I just need to do the boot work and do the hard work to prepare for that. Um, I think that's going to put me in the game a little bit more. And if nothing else, it's going to put me back into a good mental game. Because mentally last year I, I was struggling because it just seemed like it was one of those years that nothing could go right. And you know I'm not going to wallow in my own self-pity this year. I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, make my own luck and be as ready as I possibly can. So, you know, that was kind of my uh, my tangent I wanted to go on, talking about uh, season preparations from the standpoint of archery hunting and some food plot, soil health, nerd stuff that I like to talk about, you know, for all you uh, food plot guys out there. And hopefully that was something you guys enjoy. We got some good episodes coming uh, as we go through the summer here. We got some good guests lined up. I'm anxious to have on and, and uh, get your feedback on. So, guys, thanks again for tuning into another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. 